to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. I'm Commander Greg Swindon. In this episode, we will discuss Australia's efforts to protect merchant shipping during World War II. To set the scene, this campaign fell into three distinct phases. The first phase was countering the German attempts to attack the vital Australian trade route through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. This period saw German raiders attacking shipping in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, as well as laying minefields off the Australian coast. A later podcast in this season will discuss the German raider campaign in more detail. The second phase came with the Japanese entry into the war. The rapid collapse of the British and Dutch empires in Asia led to heavy raids on Northern Australia by Japanese aircraft and subsequent offensives by Japanese submarines against Australian maritime trade. These attacks were small by Atlantic standards, yet had serious impacts on the Australian economy and forced the REN to provide convoy escorts for coastal shipping. The third and final phase was the little known German U-boat campaign against Australian shipping late in the war. Once again, a later podcast in this season will discuss the German U-boat campaign in more detail. To discuss the story of the RAN's efforts to protect merchant shipping in World War II, I'm joined today by Nicole Townsend, a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Her doctoral research examines Australian involvement in the Mediterranean and Middle East theatre of operations during the Second World War. I'm also joined by Rear Admiral Simon Cullen, who retired in 2014 after 38 years of naval service. He has since been very active in the Naval Historical Society of Australia. And finally, Dr. Mark Bailey, who joined the Navy in 1979 and is still a serving Naval officer of the Maritime Trade Operations Branch. His doctorate was awarded in 2019 and is on the protection of maritime trade. Thank you all for joining me. First off, Mark, how did Australia coordinate its maritime trade effort with the rest of the British Empire? This is actually a complex question. Australia had begun coordinating ocean-going maritime trade protection with Britain as far back as 1885, when Rear Admiral George Tryon conducted negotiations which resulted in the construction of the Auxiliary Squadron. It arrived in 1891, so Australia was coordinating trade protection and defence burden sharing with Britain before the country federated. The arrival of the Australian Fleet Unit in 1913 meant that Australia was completely responsible for trade protection on Australia's station. This was coordinated through the Admiralty, which had full operational control of the Navy in World War I. During that war, the whole system was reinforced, expanded and became globally coordinated. Maritime trade itself was coordinated with the British import program, being run by three specialised ministries. By 1918, as Sir Arthur Salter noted in his 1921 History of Allied Shipping Control, Britain was coordinating and controlling the maritime trade of the whole world and protection of that trade. This was probably the greatest achievement in international administration in human history. It's certainly never been equaled. The lessons of that war were then codified and made business as usual in the 1920s. The Naval Control Service was continued on a global basis and Australia was integral to it and a major player. By the 1930s, it had to be reinvigorated and that was done by Rear Admiral Sir Eldon Manistee, who'd been the convoy controller in World War I. He visited all the Dominions, Australia in 1938, validated the Naval Control Service and all arrangements 
They range from global command and control systems to coordinated global intelligence arrangements and down to stockpiles of guns to our merchant ships. The whole system came up seamlessly in 24 hours in 1939 planet-wide when the Naval Control Service implemented naval control of shipping. So in World War II, maritime trade was protected by a complex, highly developed, mature and well-exercised global system of international defence burden sharing. Australia was a critical and integral part of it and the only dominion of the empire fully responsible for all trade on its own station. So Australia was second only to Britain in that system. The sophistication, by the way, continued down to the local level. For example, in Australia, the Combined Operational Intelligence Centre, or COIC, in Melbourne was initially created to deal with trade protection and each sub subsequent area controlled headquarters in Australia had its own subordinate COIC. It's quite interesting, Mark. It sort of puts paid to some of the uh, doctrine that comes out that Australia was completely unprepared for the war. This is very true, and it's also reflected if you read A.T. Ross's book on Armed and Ready. Australia was much better prepared for World War II than people commonly think. Nicole, what was the strategic and economic importance of the Middle East in trade route and market terms to Australia, and how did this affect its strategic importance to us? So the Middle East has been referred to in many ways over the decades, and one of those is as the swing door or the Clapham Junction of the British Empire. And it was truly the crossroads of the World Wide Web of the British Empire at the time. So the passage through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal was the shortest route from Britain to the Asia-Pacific area. But even after the Mediterranean corridor was closed in 1940 when war with Italy broke out, the trade routes from the Middle East to Australia were not closed. Now, the oil refinery in Abadan, for example, which was in Iran, was the only source of aviation-grade fuel for the first few years of the war. And even after the US developed artificial cumene in about mid-1942, which allowed them to make, manufacture synthetic aviation fuel, Iran remained the primary source of aviation gasoline for the entire British Empire, including Australia. In addition to this, you had other petroleum products, including naval fuel and motor gasoline, which were also sourced in large quantities from Iran and nearby Bahrain. Now, until the end of 1941, Australia sourced most of these products from the Dutch East Indies, so modern-day Indonesia. But when Japan swept through Southeast Asia in the early 1942, this source of fuel products was lost, and not only that, it lost its closest source. So this meant that supply lines were significantly extended as Australia turned to the Middle East, and in the end, they, they more than quadrupled their imports of petroleum products from Iran. So between 1941 and 1942, they increased to almost 60 million gallons. And within the year, by mid-1943, this had increased further and it was topped out at over 90 million gallons. Now, Australia relied heavily on this fuel to power its domestic economy before the war, but this was extenuated by the demands of maintaining a wartime economy. And even in the 1930s, Australia was one of the fastest growing motoring nations and its size necessitated this increased road transport. In the five years before the war began alone, consumption of motor fuel had increased by 50% in Australia. And this meant that securing the Middle East, as well as the shipping routes that ran across the Indian Ocean from that area, was strategically vital. Australia had no other option to source these materials. So even though some scholars suggest that America could have saved the day, um, that shipping, but, ship, but the shipping capacity required, let alone the money needed to fuel the Australian economy as well as the entire Pacific War effort from an imperial perspective, using only American fuel would have been impossible to meet. There was simply not enough vessels available, and even if they could afford it, the cost of it. When you add to this that 
losing the Middle East would have cut the supply line to Russia through Iran and opened the Bahrain oil fields to German bombing attacks, you see that the fall of the Middle East could have had dire consequences for Australia and for the broader imperial war effort just from this economic standpoint. Thanks, Nicole. It's, uh, nothing seems to have changed. We're still very reliant on fuel in this country to uh, carry out our day-to-day business. Yes, definitely. Even only in the last month, we've seen things like that coming out in, in the press about Australia's fuel storage and supply capacities. So it's definitely something that's still still current. Simon Cullen, during the early years of the war, the Mediterranean was too dangerous for merchant shipping to pass. What was the Australian response to the closure of the pre-war trade route through the Mediterranean? Well, interestingly, um, prior to the outbreak of the war, the Australian Naval Board had actually expected that the trade routes through the Mediterranean would be closed um, upon the entry of the Italian um, forces into the war. Uh, But that was because of the withdrawal of the British forces from the Mediterranean, which, of course, didn't happen for strategic reasons from uh, the British point of view. But, of course, that did uh, still preclude merchant ships transiting through the Mediterranean. Um, So um, the naval, what was then called the Naval Controller Shipping Organisation, was quickly put into place, as has already been outlined by Mark. And merchant ships were rerouted. they still needed to get to the United Kingdom principally to support the UK in its endeavour and the war effort against Nazi Germany. But uh, to get there, they had to be rerouted. So principally, they went round the Cape of Good Hope um, at the bottom of South Africa. And some also went by the Panama Canal um, to Europe that way. Um, but the merchant ships, though, weren't escorted um, during their passage, apart from when they left or arrived at a naval port such as Fremantle or Simonstown. All troop convoys were escorted, but the merchant ships at that stage of the war were still making independent passage and provided protection um, in focal points. And of course, as they approached uh, Europe, either through the Atlantic uh, from the south or from the west, they formed up into convoys and and, uh, made their way to the UK there. Um, But principally, in the early stages of the war, merchant ships were rerouted independently to get to their destinations. Yeah, that's interesting because I thought that you know, convoys started very early on in the war, but obviously there may not have been enough escorts to, uh, to do that convoy escort activity. Mark, can the deployment of the Army's, uh, that's the Australian Army's second uh, AIF, the Australian Imperial Force to Egypt, be viewed as a response to the Axis efforts to cut off Australia's maritime trade? Well, at risk of offending our army compatriots, yes. As Nicole noted and Simon described, uh, the Mediterranean through trade was critical to our trade. The Cape of Good Hope route was about 4,000 nautical miles longer or half again the length of the Mediterranean route. This meant that the Cape route added a tonnage inefficiency of about 50%. In turn, that added so much cost that it made Australian bulk exports uneconomic in wartime shipping terms. So a modern ship on the the UK Suez Australia route could only do about three round trips a year. She could do only two annual voyages via the Cape. If taken off that route and put it into the Atlantic, that same ship could do up to six voyages a year. When every single tonne counted in, in war, this was critical and explains Atlantic concentration. This was a deliberate program which stripped ships from the Australian long haul routes and employed them in the Atlantic. Compounding that, was that the ships in the Australian long-haul trades included the pick of modern British shipping. These were the big, fast cargo liners. 
the ships most valuable to the war effort. Not having access to the Mediterranean through route severely damaged Australian exports and endangered Australia's financial ability to fund the war effort. Basically, without that route, the only things worth shipping to the UK from Australia were war essentials that simply couldn't get anywhere else, high-density foodstuffs and metals in particular. So, con so contributing to forces in the Middle East was a direct way for Australia to try and stop the Axis from cutting an essential Australian economic route. It explains why Australia had had a strategic focus on the Middle East since World War I, a strategic focus that actually continues today. I'll also add a little point about convoy, that the greatest method of protecting merchant shipping was actually uh, dispersing them across the oceans. Convoy was very much a secondary protection method, simply because it costs so much transport capability. Thanks, Mark. Nicole, uh, as I previously mentioned, German raiders will be covered in a separate ep episode of this series. But how did the Germans seek to ma maximise disruption to Australia's maritime trade through the use of their disguised surface raiders? And what was the most economically disruptive impact on Australia? Yes, yeah, so German raiders were certainly one of the main issues within Australian waters during this period. The German Navy recognised early on that disrupting trade was an important means of interfering with the Australian war effort and therefore the British war effort. So as I mentioned previously, the Australian economy was heavily reliant on imported fuel products, but also other raw materials such as rubber from Ceylon, which is modern day Sri Lanka. But more generally, the coastal sea trade was responsible for most of Australia's transport. So in fact, 18 times more cargo was actually carried by sea than by land because rail and road transport was just so slow and not economic because there were breaks of gauge in the train lines and distances covered by road were too, too extensive. So in Australian waters, the main method of disruption was actually laying extensive minefields, something that the German raiders also did across the Tasman in New Zealand. Penguin, for example, mined the Bass Strait, which successfully sunk an American freighter, and other raiders mined the entrances to ports in Western Australia, New South Wales, South Australia, and all over the country. Now, Orion was one of the most successful German raiders, um, with four vessels being sunk across Australia in the South Pacific waters after hitting mines she had laid. And she sunk another four, another six, sorry, by direct fire. Now, Orion and Comet also teamed up and they even attacked the Australian protectorate of Nauru. And in this event, they sunk four merchant ships over 48 hours and ended up taking over 500 prisoners. So although they did engage ships in direct fire, this was generally done on the open seas uh, where ships were more vulnerable. In the Indian Ocean, for example, as Simon mentioned earlier, most sailings proceeded unescorted. The troop convoys that moved from Australia to the Middle East were always escorted because of their value, but merchant shipping usually was not. And in the open sea, far from any air protection from land, these vessels were targeted for these, by these raiders. Again, they laid minefields in the choke points on shipping routes and they attacked the vessels directly. But it was not necessarily about the how much tonnage the raiders destroyed, so much as it was about the interruption they caused. So in much the same way that Japan sought to isolate Australia and cut her off from the vital shipping routes across the Indian and Pacific Oceans, German raiders targeted these shipping routes in major ports. And by doing so, they aimed to draw allied resources from elsewhere and weaken allied efforts in other places like the Atlantic. And this was particularly important because much of the cargo that eventually crossed the Atlantic actually originated in Australia and New Zealand, India, Ceylon, Africa and the Middle East. And most of this passed over the Indian Ocean. So although ships could relatively easily divert to safer waters, 
which was the benefit of being at sea. This necessarily lengthened journeys, which in turn made shipping less economic, as Mark has previously, previously said. So Australian, Australia had to employ extensive countermeasures, and they did so. So they deployed auxiliary minesweepers, such as HMH ships Bermagui and Uki, which regularly patrolled for mines, and they also set up convoys on coastal shipping. But on the open seas, one of their only options was to actually go and hunt the raiders down. And various Australian cruisers, including HMA Sydney, were involved in these operations. Some of these hunts were successful, others not so much, and Australian ships such as Sydney were lost. And many raiders actually went unchallenged and undetected in the end. So the German raider threat was shorter lived than the Japanese submarine threat in a way, but it successfully forced Australia and its allies to hunt for them. And it also succeeded in drawing Allied resources away from other battles throughout the global theatre while sinking various vessels. Thanks, Nicole. A minor aside, why, why did the Germans attack Nauru? What was there that would have been of any use? That was possibly the most effective attack on Australia during the war. Nauru and Ocean Island were our major source of superphosphates. The effect of that attack was to deny us those superphosphates and that actually cut Australian wheat production by about 15% over the course of the war. Oh, thanks, Mark. I didn't know that. Simon, broadly, how did uh, Australia protect its trade from these raiders in coordination with the other powers of the empire and with the Royal Navy? Well, the, the coordination piece is very important. The, the Admiralty became very concerned about the radars. Raiders in, in 1940. Uh, and formed Section 19, it was called in the Operational Intelligence Centre in London. Similarly, as, as Marcus pointed out, uh, we established in a similar time frame the Combined Operations Intelligence Centre in Melbourne with annexes elsewhere around the countryside. Uh, but even with that intelligence uh, uh, framework set up, um, had great difficulty tracking the radars because, radars because of the vast range of their operations, the Atlantic Ocean, Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean, and the fact they generally operated in radio silence, so they're very hard to, to detect where they were and what they were doing. Most of the time, the first they knew of a successful action by a raider was when they heard the broadcast, Romeo, 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 from a merchant ship indicating a raider was, was uh, present nearby, or the four cues to signify an auxiliary cruiser was close by. These uh, intelligence organisations, uh, both the Imperial and Australian, um, issued weekly intelligence reviews on raiders, um, which released the back, latest facts about where they thought they were operating, silhouettes of the vessels, possibilities of what that might do next, biographies of the ships and their commanding officers, and some general discussion about tactics employed. However, this, this process was very much a historical looking back type approach because it was very hard to predict where they would be next. Um, the best response, as Nicole has highlighted to the Raiders, was what um, was called at the time hunter groups, which really were either focused in focal areas or responded from military ports uh, around the world. And this is what happened uh, for the Penguin when it was uh, laying mines, as Nicole has highlighted, around the southern coast of Australia. Three warships were dispatched from Sydney to try and find the Raider, and the RAF. Coastal Air Command also launched aircraft sorties to try and um, locate it because they knew it was there um, somewhere, but they were um, very unsuccessful in that process. Um, there was great uh, media coverage at the time about uh, radar activities. 
and Daily Telegraph even was criticising the performance of the Air Force at the time. Not so much what they were doing, but the fact they didn't have enough aircraft to patrol um, uh, sea routes around the coast uh, appropriately. Um, the, the, really, the Raiders were not um, uh, tied down in any way until the British uh, broke the Ultra Code a year later in 1941, when um, they were able to track the supply vessels of the Raiders and start sweeping them up, which led to uh, a disruption of Raider operations thereafter. As a follow-up, um, the Navy was involved in uh, fitting degaussing systems to merchant ships to protect them from German magnetic mines, obviously because the Germans had laid mines in Australian waters. What, what is this degaussing system? Well, from the earliest days of the um, of the war, the Admiralty had been concerned about the technology employed by the Germans in their, their mining campaigns, particularly the development of the magnetic mine, which didn't need to actually hit the ship to detonate. It was detonated by the magnetic signature of the ship passing close by, causing the reaction, explosive reaction in, in the mine. Um, so to counter this, the, there was all the research done in the UK, the Admiralty Research Laboratory, and they initially developed a device which was towed behind a minesweeper, which detonated these magnetic mines. But they also discovered that each ship, in particular merchant ships, had their own uh, individual magnetic signature, which could be uh, changed considerably if wire coils were placed along the hull and an adjustable current was passed through those coils to um, minimise the magnetic signature of the ship. Just uh, per chance, there was an Australian uh, um, in the UK when this research was taking place, and he had he was from the University of Sydney. He was an expert in uh, in um, this field, and he was invited by the Admiralty to join the researchers in the UK uh, on their work they were doing. He then brought this back to Australia, again to the University of Sydney, and uh, eventually a naval officer, Win Riley, was appointed as the head of the section of the Australian Navy that would implement this degaussing system in ships, both Navy ships and merchant ships. And they started by laying a, uh, a test and trials range in Sydney Harbour, which in fact is still there today, um, not far from Shark Island. And then they fitted uh, uh, degaussing coils to hundreds of ships and basically ran the ships over the range, uh, initially in Sydney, but also in Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Fremantle um, to reduce the magnetic signature of the ships. And it was extremely effective and is in fact still used today by um, warships. Oh, thank you, Simon. Mark, turning now to the second phase of trade protection, Japan has entered the war and relatively quickly seizes Singapore and the Dutch East Indies. Could you describe the Japanese submarine force offensive against Australian maritime trade in 1942-43 and what was its impact on the Australian war economy? Certainly. Uh, the Japanese submarine force was not designed for war against maritime trade, and perhaps we can discuss that a little later. Despite that a disadvantage, the Japanese were effective against us. They didn't start too well. An initial attack by three mine-laying submarines off Darwin led to one of them, the I-124, being sunk on the 20th of January 1942 by HMAS Rain. After that initial opening move, Australian ports were subject to some reconnaissance and a modest submarine offensive against Aries Coast shipping was launched. 
When employed against us in 1942-43, the Japanese submarines were effective and had a serious impact on both the Australian trade and the Australian economy. The most important impact and largest effect was to force coastal convoys to be doubled in size and halved in number to provide additional escorts to each convoy. Now, convoy costs about one-eighth of the shipping capacity of the merchant ships involved because they all have to steam at the speed of the slowest ship. So halving the convoys to provide fewer targets and more escorts cost even more transport capability, probably about a fifth of the entire capacity of Australian coastal shipping was lost. This choked back Australia's economy and damaged Australian industry by causing coal, iron ore and limestone shortfalls. It also damaged the railways by forcing them to carry, to run at over capacity. Now this was before they sank much. When that started, they sank three of the five specialised purpose-designed iron ore carriers on the Australian coast. This ran down stockpiles and then reduced steel production forcing the cancellation, for example, of American orders for Australian pig iron and steel. So serious was the problem that the Americans and British were forced to find and send out any ships they could scrape up. And these were mostly very old and very slow, but that was all they had available. Australian anti-submarine measures were not really up to Atlantic standards, yet they were pretty decent. It's noteworthy that not one, Australian sub one Japanese submarine was sunk off the Australian East Coast while well, the 1942-43 offensive against Australian maritime trade caused quite serious damage to the Australian war economy. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so even for a small amount of effort, the Japanese were causing significant uh, damage to uh, our economy. Very true. And it's the disruption rather than the sinkings. People tend to focus on those, but it's the actual loss of the cargoes that don't get moved, which is the real measure. And, of course, that's very hard to measure. Nicole, what was the Australian Naval and Air Force response to the Japanese submarine offensive on our East Coast? So interestingly, the threat from the Japanese submarines was actually something that had been on the minds of senior Australian naval officers for more than two years before the attacks on Pearl Harbour and the Philippines actually took place. So in July 1940, the then Assistant Chief of Naval Staff, Joseph Burnett, actually noted that the threat these submarines posed if Japan entered the war was actually a very grave one because unlike the German Navy, Japan had many vessels and many nearby bases from which they were able to operate and send forces out to Australian waters. So as it happened, the Japanese submarine offensive began early in 1942 during the initial Japanese sweep through Southeast Asia. And even before the fall of Singapore on 15 February, the first Japanese submarines had entered Australian waters and four boats from the Imperial Japanese Navy Submarine Squadron 6, as Mark noted, had already laid three minefields on the approaches to Darwin and at the entrance to the Torres Strait. In the next few days, two US Navy destroyers and the oiler they were escorting came under torpedo attack. And as Mark noted, the RAN actually successfully sunk their first and only full-size submarine in Australian waters, the I-124. These submarine attacks continued well into 1943, and the submarines later sunk two merchant ships off the West Australian coast in March 1942 and attacked both Sydney and Newcastle in May and June. This forced different countermeasures to be put in place to protect against these attacks and limit the losses sustained if an attack was successful. And these included limiting the tonnage of cargo carried on a vessel, introducing irregular sailings to avoid predictability, and sometimes shutting down entire merchant shipping routes. So shipping between Adelaide and Brisbane, for example, was suspended entirely at one point. But the main response was the introduction of a convoy system, and this saw all available government RAN and RAAF assets provide escorts to protect shipping from these submarine attacks. 
So trans-Tasman sailings, for example, from the East Coast were escorted to within 200 nautical miles from the coastline, and these there they also met ships coming from New Zealand, and they would be escorted back to port. Now, in the end, the interlocking convoy system actually stretched almost the entire east coast of Australia from Melbourne to Townsville, and the procedures put in place differed depending on a vessel's speed and tonnage. So if a vessel was determined not to require a convoy because of limited resources, they were, they were enforced not to sail it in darkness, and they were also ordered to zigzag when they were within that 200 nautical mile boundary of the coastline to fend off against these uh, mine attacks and submarines. So importantly, it was not only naval assets that were also involved in these convoy operations, and as Simon mentioned, the RAAF was also involved. So for their part, the Air Force carried out anti-submarine and convoy escort missions throughout this period, particularly along the eastern area around New South Wales. And in January 1943 alone, the RAAF flew over 400 missions associated with anti-submarine and convoy operations. So there's no doubt the institution of the coastal convoy system affected the efficiency of Australian shipping, as Mark noted, but it was an effective protection against attack better than nothing. Mark, in popular historical view, the Japanese Navy was ineffective against maritime trade. Were, yeah, so how were they effective against Australia's trade? Well, the popular view about the, effect, about the effectiveness of the Imperial Japanese Navy against trade is really quite seriously flawed. This is mostly the result of post-war historians not having access to a lot of information about the Pacific War. Close analysis of what the small Japanese submarine force actually achieved does not support the view that they were ineffective. They were actually quite effective. The Japanese submarine force was the main force available to attack distant enemies, but, the, but like the American submarine force, the vessels were not designed for that mission in mind before World War II. Both submarine forces were adjuncts to the main fleet. Both were optimised for scouting, reconnaissance and for attacking the enemy fleet. This all demanded big submarines that were rather fast on the surface, which had a really good comprehensive long-range communications fit, and even a scout aircraft, if at all possible. And a lot of big Japanese submarines carried their own aircraft. This made them slow diving and reduced their underwater performance. In turn, that made them very expensive, which kept numbers very low compared to German U-boat numbers. A submarine designed for trade war is much smaller, cheaper and simpler, and so is built in much larger numbers. Japanese average submarine was around three times the size of a German Type 7 U-boat and about eight times the cost. So Japanese submarines were the largest in, in the world in World War II and many carried aircraft. They were not trained in trade war and worse, Japanese Navy's sixth fleet, the submarine fleet, was ordered to, was ordered to change its focus many times during the war. And really it comes down to the point that we tend not to measure effectiveness correctly. We tend to measure how many ships did you sink? Whereas the real metric is disruption and how much trade was not carried. Thanks, Mark. And in fact, I think uh, the Japanese submarine attack on Sydney Harbour in 1942 actually saw one of those uh, aircraft flying over Sydney uh, on reconnaissance duties before the midget submarines were sent in. Yes, it did. And they also did the same thing over Melbourne. And there was also a reconnaissance of Hobart, uh, a New Zealand port, I can't recall, and Suva in Fiji. Nicole, turning now to the third phase of trade protection. During 1944 and 45, the Germans launched a U-boat campaign against Australia. How effective were they in disrupting Australian trade given the low levels of attack? And why did they conduct this campaign so far away from the Atlantic? 
Well, the Germans had planned for U-boat operations in the Indian Pacific Oceans from as early as 1939. But the limited availability of long-range U-boats and their initial focus on the Atlantic meant they did not begin to actually implement those plans until much later in 1943. By that stage, the Germans had withdrawn from the Atlantic because they'd sustained significant losses, um, and they instead began to focus on a dispersive strategy. If they could no longer have the necessary effect in the Atlantic, the German Navy's commander-in-chief decided that they would attempt to stretch Allied forces further again. In terms of the operational success, it was quite limited. Interestingly, many of the U-boats dispatched to the Indian and Pacific Oceans never actually made it as they were sunk on the journey through the European and Atlantic waters on the way. But eventually up to 10 U-boats at a time were operating from Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. Now, when the German Navy finally started preparing for operations in Australian waters, the Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne intercepted and deciphered the German naval signals. And this meant that when the U-boats headed south for Australia, they were able to be reported on as they moved between Japanese ports and Allied submarines were deployed on out-of-area operations to neutralise the threat before they were able to reach Australian waters. So in total, four U-boats were actually sunk by Allied naval assets. U-168 and U-183 were both sunk in the Java Sea, the first by a Dutch submarine and the latter by the USS Bazugo. U-196 was also sunk in the Java Sea by suspected Allied mine, and USS Flounder sunk U-537 off the coast of Surabaya, also in the Java Sea. All of these were sunk between October and November 1944, and in the end, only one of the U-boats, U-862, actually made it to Australia. And it's been, it had very limited success there, sinking only two ships. But it was less about how many ships they sunk, because you, what, you, what U-862 did succeed in doing was drawing Australian attention to its presence in Australian waters. And as Mark said, this is the importance of disruption, not necessarily what damage they wreak in their operations. So until it left Australian waters in early 1942, it caused issues as the RAF RAAF undertook heavy operations surrounding regular suspected sightings of the submarine. And the intelligence teams were required to maintain a large and ongoing commitment to maintain a track on the U-boat's progress. So it didn't matter if it was only it only sunk two, two vessels because it was causing the disruption it needed. So all up, the chief takeaway was, to, so to say, was that the German U-boat offensive was not very successful at all. And it was largely a last-ditch attempt to keep the submarines in action after withdrawal from the Atlantic. Because by this stage, interfering with Australian trade was not going to have a decisive effect in terms of swinging the war toward the Axis. That ship had long sailed. But importantly, what, what we see there is that the Allies successfully countered the campaign by intercepting and decrypting the Japanese and German naval communications through their fleet radio unit in Melbourne. And they effectively deployed Allied submarines to intercept those U-boats before they could reach Australia and therefore prohibit that, the effect that the Germans wanted in that operation. Thanks, Nicole. Finally, can I now ask you for your final comments on Australia's efforts to protect merchant shipping during World War II? Firstly, Nicole. I just reinforce the relevance of this discussion at the moment. So given the renewed focus on international maritime trade at the moment, particularly in the case of access to fuel supplies in Australia, We've seen in recent months the focus on the lack of mainland storage and interruption of fuel supplies and maritime trade routes with COVID and all of these issues. So it's something that does matter right now as well. But I would also like to stress the importance of the service of the merchant marine, particularly in the case of oil tankers, because these men were literally sitting on a powder keg and they knew it every time they sailed across the ocean without 
any convoy with them, but they still did it. Thanks, Nicole. Mark, what are your views? I'd really reinforce what Nicole has said. Um, today, Australia is at least as dependent on maritime trade as it was in World War II. It's something we ignore very much at our peril, and yet very few Australians understand exactly how dependent they are. Everything in our households, every car we drive, they all come from overseas. Thanks, Mark. And finally, Simon. I think the thing I would highlight is the people aspect. Uh, many sailors went to see merchant ships in very difficult and traumatic times and didn't come home afterwards. We give uh, a lot of respect to those who served in uniform, um, but perhaps we think less about those who served at sea in merchant ships, and we should give a bit more thought to what they achieved during wartime. Thank you. Sadly, that is all we have time for now. My thanks to Nicole Townsend, Simon Cullen, and Mark Bailey. I commend to you the two forthcoming episodes on Australia's efforts to counter the German raider threat, and then the later German U-boat campaign off Australia. These will be released later in the season of Australia's naval history. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. This production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.